Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for October 8th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we hear from the leader of the Razorback team from the Arkansas Department of Agriculture's Forestry Division, who recently returned from helping to fight destructive West Coast forest fires. We also learn about the Arkansas Food Conservancy's work in Northwest Arkansas, get an update on this year's peanut crop, and hear from a farmer working to bring in harvest before more rain arrives this weekend. First, Keith Sutton learns about this year's peanut crop from Heath Donner, who grows them on his Mississippi County farm. Welcome to AgCast. This is Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. Today, my guest is Heath Donner, who farms in Mississippi County. He's from Manila area up there. Hi, Heath. How are you today? Good, Keith. Good to hear from you today. Yeah, we always enjoy talking to you, Heath. Uh, Folks uh, really like hearing what y'all are doing up in Mississippi County. Uh, For some folks, that's like the other part of the world. Y'all are way (laughs) up there, as we say. (laughs) Yes, we are. Well, uh, let's start out. Let's tell folks a little bit about your farming operation. I know uh, you're actually a fifth generation farmer, at least on some of that land. Tell us a little bit about your operation. I I am a fifth generation farmer. I I farmed my father, Alan, uh, here in Mississippi County for about 3,000 acres, and we have kind of transitioned over the last few years. We're growing up, we were predominantly a, a, a cotton farm to uh, our majority of our, or not a majority, but a, a large portion of our acres now are going into peanuts. Uh, we're, we've got about 1,100 acres of peanuts every year, and we split the rest of the acres in, in between cotton and corn and soybeans. So uh, you got a, a a varied operation. Y'all are doing a lot of different stuff, but I think uh, folks really are interested in hearing about peanuts. It it hasn't been too many years since uh, peanuts came to Arkansas, so to speak. It's not a crop that we used to see a lot of, but I know you were one of the first farmers probably in the whole state that started farming peanuts. Can you tell us a little about that? We uh, Peanuts in, in Arkansas kind of had a resurgence. I think, if I'm not mistaken, back in the 80s, uh, there, was, there was a little bit of under a quarter system, and there was a few small acres here and there. I think there was a fine point down around Hughes, uh, but... But in 2011, 2012, peanuts started to creep in to northeast Arkansas again, and it started over in Randolph and Lawrence County. Uh, that's where actually the mine points kind of settled at that point. And they uh, went from uh, there in 2012, we raised our first crop. It was, uh, we, we started pretty small on acres, 275 acres, and you think, well, that's, that's, my, that's not even enough to even mess with. But uh, in, 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 in the peanut world, 275 acres is about all you're going to run through a, one full-type combine, and uh, it was one of them economies of scale with the equipment. That's where we started. And uh, it was a, uh, at that point, it was a learning experience. I, I did more studying <laughs> at, at that point than I had since college. Uh, but anyway, we uh, we got into peanuts then, and it's, steadily grown our acres over that period of time and, and as as 
other farmers around kind of looked to us and a few others, uh, another group in Crankhead County, they, they, we kind of all, uh, everybody started jumping on board. And, and, and now we went from just a few thousand acres in the state to, to well over 30,000 acres now. Wow. That, that's really a, a big growth in a short period of time. And, I know your operation has grown from just that 275 up to how many this year? 1,100? 1,100 acres, yes, sir. We're, we're, we're on up there uh, just enough that we definitely have some good weather. Yes, I know uh, I had the opportunity to come up a couple of years ago and, and see y'all uh, working on the harvest. and. It's it's kind of nerve wracking, isn't it? You got to turn those peanuts up and get them out of the ground, and then you got to wait until they get dry before you can harvest. Can you talk about that a little? We do, we're, and that's currently what what I've been doing today is, is, is been uh, what we call digging peanuts. We're taking the peanuts that are in the ground. The plants look perfectly green, perfectly healthy, and you flip them upside down, and 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 that's where the nuts are at, are in the ground, and and we try to get those to dry out, and when they once they dry out, uh, then we can come back and run it what we call a combine. Some of the combines don't look like what most people would consider to be a combine. They're pulled behind a tractor. Uh, some of them are. Some of them are what we call self-propelled. That looks a, a little more like a, a green combine. But uh, but anyway, uh, but in that process, we certainly don't want to rain and. Sometimes we get one, and we have to deal with that. Uh, just a challenge, uh, just like any other farming uh, commodity. Uh, but it, it is extremely weather dependent from the time that we get the, the peanuts dug up until the time they, they actually get harvested. Well, we should tell folks, too, you're out there right now uh, trying to get all this done, and, and we uh, took a few minutes of your time so we could talk. So, if folks hear a little little bit of breaking up, you're way out in the field somewhere in Mississippi County, and I'm down here in Little Rock talking to you. <laughs> but that's good. Uh, we uh, we want to hear a little bit about how how is it your peanut crop this year? Is it looking good? It it, it what what I the field at the end of the day it didn't they look like the yield was was real good, and, and we've obviously not combined any at this point. Uh, what we were digging today, but uh, they did look good, and and I think we had uh, pretty good weather this year for peanuts. Peanuts typically like heat; uh, they, they're not opposed to the heat. To put it that way, they are a crop that can tolerate it. Uh, right. They, they typically grow a bigger vine, not necessarily a bigger yield, but a bigger vine when um, on a hot year. And uh, we've got some big vines this time, so that's all good. Uh, Planting was a little wet, hit and miss, but but I think overall it dried out in time. For that, uh, I, I think yield should be we should have at least an average crop. I think. And uh, this year you'll have an opportunity to take those peanuts to a new shelling facility. Am I correct? That's yeah. right. We we actually delivered last year's crop. They were going to have to stick them in wheelhouses, but they are actually shelling. 2000 Delta Peanut in Jonesboro is shelling 2019 crop right now. 
Okay, uh, okay. And so, but they started on them, uh, I guess, probably a month ago and have started digging, or start, started, sorry, started shelling those peanuts and, and shipping them out in rail cars and in trucks and, and uh, getting them to the peanut butter uh, makers and, and whatnot. Those peanuts, we, break, we deliver them to the warehouse in Shell, and they shell them, and then they go out and shell peanuts, uh, most of the time with the skin on, and, and they will they will then go to a uh, to the GIFs and uh, the Smuckers and, and those type companies uh, to be turned into peanut butter or candies or uh, many other uses. So some of the uh, folks that are listening to this, next time they pick up a jar of peanut butter, those peanuts that made that peanut butter may have come from your farm, right? That, that's exactly <laughs> right. It's, it's pretty cool that one of the first – when we first got into this, one of the company that we were doing business with, uh, their number one customer was M&M Mars. So oh, wow. So they eat, eat uh, peanut M&Ms and Snickers and, and those kind of stuff. <laughs> we were very well eating, uh, uh, eating our peanuts, which is, which is really cool. You know, it's just one of those things, with, with, you know, traceability and that kind of thing has become more of a thing in farming. But uh, right. that, to, to be able to sit down and, and I guess justify a reason to eat a candy bar or, or, or some, you know, some candy is very important. You local farmer, that's a pretty good deal. That is a good deal. And uh, just quickly, and I know we need to let you get back to your harvest, but let's tell folks a little about Delta Peanut. This is a special deal. It's 100% farmer-owned, and uh, it's really the the first of its kind facility in the state. It, it really is. And, and peanut shellers, in, in previous times, for our peanuts to be shelled, they had to go to Oklahoma, uh, and that, eventually that company went out of business, and then it was going to Central Texas, or down into Alabama and Georgia, and it to be shelled. That's where half our peanuts had to be trucked, and, the, and there wasn't any way to get them there other than a semi-truckload. Uh, and freight and that kind of thing was for the cost, and so somebody had to bear that, whether that's the farmer end or the company right. end. And, and it, but eventually, it went down to the farmer, and so uh, we, uh, with the help of man, Tommy Jumper, he organized the the farmers in uh, end of this, and it, it's a farmer-owned co-op situation, and and we are uh, it's a state-of-the-art facility that they built in Jonesboro. That uh, 75 farmers, farmer members have have uh, got together and, and done this, and it, it's a it's a, and a just a really cool thing to be part of. To to be fully integrated in a crop is always a good thing. Uh, to be able to, to as a farmer to uh, see see your product go all the way to the end is is, is just a pretty cool deal. Right. And uh, but it's it's a good thing for. It's a good thing for the economy in, in northeast Arkansas. That's providing numerous jobs in the Jonesboro area uh, on top of what would normally be uh, just your normal agriculture stuff. Uh, it, it's 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 a it's a it's a thing that we hope is going to be around for a very very long time. Well, we do too. Uh, we wish you the best of luck with this year's harvest. We appreciate you. Uh, 
taking time here for a few minutes to tell us more about peanuts. So now we will never look at those uh, candy bars quite the same again, or M&M's or peanut butter. We'll be thinking about you, Heath. Appreciate uh, that, Keith. Thank you very much for taking time, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again sometime in the next uh, few weeks. Thank you very much. I enjoy it. Appreciate it. Greg Patterson speaks to tomato farmer Dennis McGarra and Diana Endicott, director of the Arkansas Food Conservancy. McGarra talks about how he worked with the Food Conservancy to find a place to process and sell his tomato crop. Endicott explains how the Conservancy is working with dozens of farms in the area and helping them market their crops. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we have two guests today. We've got Diana Endicott, who's the director of the Northwest Arkansas Food Conservancy. And we've got a farmer who is a specialty crop grower, Dennis McGarra, and he's up there in Northwest Arkansas. And welcome to both of you. Thank you. Diana, why don't you give us a rundown to get started on on what the Food Conservancy is, what you're doing up there in Northwest Arkansas. Well, the Food Conservancy is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we have been doing work over the past 10 years in working with um, uh, both really access, you know, establishment and access um, to local food systems. And in the past, we've worked with a group over in Missouri and Kansas, really basically um, to the west, to the west southeast Kansas of, uh, of Kansas and kind of the central west of Missouri area, and we established a food, a food system there for the Kansas City metro area. And then we're doing some similar work on food access and food um, reestablishing local food systems in St. Louis. And so back in November, around November of 2019, um, we were asked to come, the Food Conservancy was asked to come to Northwest Arkansas um, to help establish a, a local food hub um, uh, here in Northwest Arkansas. So we, we have uh, the facility here at 1605 Springdale, and we've been here since uh, November of 2019, and we started moving food um, the spring of 2020. Okay, um, it, it's interesting. Um... Uh, you talk about a local food hub, and you mentioned uh, obviously the Kansas City and St. Louis metropolitan areas. Those are those are cities, and rapidly growing is is Northwest Arkansas. So, so give some examples of of how you uh, create a local food hub. Well, in the past, we of course we've done numerous. Um, studies and business plans with major institutions like the Wallace Center and, and the Kellogg Foundation. Um, but however, I think that the best and most efficient and most sustainable uh, for, the, for the region is to let it grow organically. So you establish a facility and a facility or a food hub, the actual structure gives everyone a feeling of having a home. Um, it belongs to the people. Um, and so it allows them to be able, whether they need refrigerated space for a few days or whether they need a place to help market their food, whether they need some training on food safety, it gives everyone, regardless of their size, a place to be able to come together, um, to be able to work together 
to uh, be able to get access to larger scale wholesale markets. Right. Um, now, Dennis, how about um, how about you, Charles? You're a specialty crop grower. Um, give us a little background on on your farm and and how long you've been farming. Well, I've been farming ever since I've been eight years old. I reckon I started with my grandma. One year we put out about forty tomato plants. Of course, back in them days, there was plenty of markets for tomatoes because in Springdale itself, they actually had a tomato market where growers and buyers come together, you know, and of course over the years that kind of went by the wayside as California grew and grew and overtook most of the tomato market in the month of July. But uh, myself, then I've done a factory work, but I always played around with the farm also. I stayed on, I, instead of going bass fishing and on the days off, I was farming, okay, and that kind of grew into my life after a while, I got rid of the factory job, and that's all I do. And I do several different things. We grow strawberries, blackberries, blueberries, tomatoes, peppers, watermelons, cantaloupe. And in the fall, we have the fall festival pumpkin patches around here. And we actually promote it. Okay, so you're doing some, some ag tourism as well. A lot of agritourism as well. We do pick your own strawberries, blackberries, and now it's pick your own pumpkin. We actually have the pumpkin field at my place where you can actually go into the pumpkin patch and take a wagon and clippers, and actually the kids get actually get to see where the pumpkin actually come from, not out of a bin at Walmart's. Okay. <laughs> that sounds that sounds great. Now, where is your farm located, Dennis? Well, I have three locations. We have uh, Pea Ridge is my pumpkin patch, and uh, Lowell, I have uh, strawberries and blackberries at Lowell, and my son has the place at Fedville that we started farming there. So we've actually got three locations here in northwest Arkansas. We've planted a little over 73,000 strawberries for the 21 season. We hope to have a good strawberry crop because that kind of gets us started every year. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are you doing open field or a high tunnel, or how do you do that? Well, it, I'm doing open field. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, as, as high tunnels are not for everybody. I, uh, When it first started to be in a fad about 10, 12 years ago, I decided I wanted me one. But my biggest problem with high tunnels is I grew strawberries in them, and then I grew tomatoes in them, and... Uh, I don't like the flavor out of them. And people say there's no change. I know better than that because, believe me, anybody can tell the difference in produce. I think I can. Okay, and I didn't like them, and I didn't like the idea of uh, having to start earlier and stay later than I wanted to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking talking about flavor and and tomatoes, I understand you you came up against a. Uh, a situation where you had a bunch of tomatoes that you needed to uh, to market and and move and and that's kind of how you and and Diana got together to figure out how to do that. Tell us that story. Well, it's uh, first of all, I, I generally grow so many heirlooms and a regular slice of tomatoes every year, and I do have a distributor to mostly the 
parts stores and fruit sheds and stuff and people I know and I usually don't have too much problem getting rid of what I grow and but this year I was doing a test with the University of Arkansas tomato trials and I put out a little too many okay I didn't know what I had until it was here and then when you uh, picking 2,000 pounds of tomatoes every two days you got to have a place to go with them and that's where they come in I talked to one of the reps here, Terry, last year, and they was talking about getting this started. And the whole deal is, for me, is the fact that I've got a place to go with them. Like she said, if I need refrigeration for a few days or something like that, I can bring them here and get them in the cooler. And But the best thing about this is it's one stop. I mean, at the, before I was dropping, you know, maybe five or six boxes at one grocery store. Time you cover 16 or 18 grocery stores, that's a long day, and I need to be on the farm. I don't need to be out there on the road dropping right. stuff everywhere, you know. So, so when you say you grew a, a kind of a euphemistic uh, statement there when you said you grew a little too many um What's a little too many? What what were you facing? Well, I was I was well. Let's see. You figure. Well, my my general sales would have been around three hundred boxes a week. Is what I could probably get rid of generally, and I was pushing seven to eight hundred boxes a week. So that was wow. So that kind of put me out there on a limb. In the tomato business, I know there's going to be weeks like that because when you peak out, you may have uh, generally on my peak weeks, I would have probably five to 600 boxes, and this year is <laughs> seven to 800 boxes. So I needed some help, and they provided the help. So, so, so Di- Diana, tell us, when you got the phone call from Dennis uh, and you had to spring into action, what did you do? Well, it, it really we've been we've been doing this for a while, so the main main difficulty I had was just not knowing the people and knowing the resources of the area since we're since we're you know rel- relatively new here. But um, our the people that we're working with, um, Karen, Indy, and and Terry, um, they were able to help me be able to kind of say, okay, here's where we here's some processing facilities and and provided list of them and then worked with Dennis to move as much as we could out um, to the harp stores and we had some other resources KT produce came in and helped tremendously so we had a lot of people in the area willing to move the tomatoes and 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 help us Um, however there was some that I just felt were just maybe just a little bit too ripe or maybe had a few too many cracks so we wanted to make sure we were able to keep our quality up and I was also interested one of my true interest is in product development. And right. so I just started down the list, and I have happened just by, you know, happenstance. Like I said, a lot of this is the best way is just let it organically happen. And sometimes you always plan things, but until you have a, you know, a crisis or a situation, um, it kind of motivates you a little bit faster. So I reached out to H&O Blending Solutions, which is in Fordyce. Fordyce, Fordyce, Fordyce Arkansas. And it's owned by James and Stephanie Rogers and just some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And 
Um, I, they, did, they did not know of the Food Conservancy or myself or anyone, and I just had a short, brief conversation of this is our situation, and we would um, like for you to know if you'd be able to help us out. And just unbelievably, they said, well, yes, we can. Can you have them here in a couple of days? <laughs> so we were able to uh, uh, be able we – we have refrigerated trucks, um, so we were able to – uh, hold the tomatoes at you know around 50, 55 degrees. We held the truck at 50, 55. We took them in the next the next day. They, these tomatoes were all of you know of high, very high quality, so it wasn't like they were getting stuff that was seconds or anything. Oh sure, sure. They were able to be in a 10 pound flat box, stacked, already sorted by variety, um, also by sorted by ripeness. And so when we brought those into them, um, I, they said, "Do you have any? But what products would you like for, to be?" To have these made into, and I said, "Well, you're in the business, so you probably need to to tell me." <laughs> so we ended up with two products. Um, one is a, is an heirloom uh, tomato juice, and it's very unique in that it does not settle out. You know, some you know some of your tomato juices, you know, as they set, the pulp and the will go to the bottom. And this mm-hmm. is in a unique bottle. It's in a a small stem bottle, and then. Uh, so more like kind of like the old Coke bottle look. And so I think it's, it's unique in that way. And then they did what they call a crushed tomato, which is basically just taking the heirloom tomatoes, blending them together, and then it's more like a, a petite tomato or a – it's not a, a pureed, pureed sauce, but it's more of a, a – like a crush. It has pieces in it. And um, that can be used sure. for sauces. It can be used for making chili or stews or anything. So it has – we wanted something that had a lot of versatility. Um, we're working on the label right now, so we'll be able to tell them the varieties of heirlooms. We'll be able to actually label it as an heirloom and then really tell about Dennis. I mean, that's the purpose of this is you can buy tomatoes anywhere, okay? That's not what we're – the customer we're looking for is a customer that, you know, really wants to be able to support the local farmers. And, um, and you know, and every time someone, you know, supports, it just may just be a few dollars, but when everyone starts putting a few dollars in, then you can start really um, influencing the stores, um, the retailers. You can start influencing the growers because the growers have a lot more confidence in the pro- in the process, and then you can start really changing the landscape over a longer period of time. So those are the two products we have, and actually we're getting ready to send some more tomatoes. Now, we have a market for these tomatoes, but again, I know next year <clears> – <throat> As more people grow tomatoes and Dennis grows more, we're going to come into the same situation. So we're, the next group that we're bringing out there that we're just doing because we I wanted, would like to have another product developed is actually going to be a tomato vinaigrette. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so we kind of, you know, grown with, with, the, with H&O. They're very, you know, um, I think it's good for them uh, to be able to, uh, start, you know, maybe open a door to other small, um, you know, area, even around Little Rock, you know, knowing that they're, they're there and, and their door is open and they have, they have some opportunities to help us, you know, add some value or, or develop some value-added products. So, so, Dennis, you obviously have been growing tomatoes for a long time and you've been doing it um, – you know, and getting getting out to, you know, local grocery stores and, and other outlets where you can move product. Has this uh, uh, experience that you had now kind of got you thinking, 
maybe you will grow more tomatoes. Well, it's got me thinking that. I used to grow a lot more than I grew at this point in time, but, uh, you know, it, it, it also the point is uh, when I start moving around, uh, I'm getting a little older, and I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I can take on too much more, but I've got some youngins in the family that's going to be interested that I'm going to bring along. And Another thing about this also is the fact that they had to, they could probably do a better job of dispensing my product to the restaurants because we have a lot of restaurants around here. I can't run from one restaurant to another for a box or two tomatoes, you know. I just haven't got the time. So I, I, I feel that they, there's untapped sources there, as many high-end restaurants and stuff as we've got here in northwest Arkansas, you know, for the help. And, yeah, I'd probably grow some more. I'm, we're going to discuss that. It's, I can always do my best farming around the far. When it gets cold in the winter and you're inside, I, I do the best farming you ever seen. Then you're like you're like what what I used to call a a catalog farmer. When you're sitting in in the cold when nothing's out there growing and you got the catalog in your hands and and you're dreaming about all the good stuff you can grow. Well, I know we can grow it. I mean, uh, that's that's the whole deal and. I had the uh, facilities because I I have irrigation wells and stuff like that, something that a person really needs if they're going to do any of this business. they got to have a water source. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, we didn't do that, and we'd watch our crops burn up every year. And I just said if I ever done it on my own, I wouldn't do without water. And, yes, it's expensive drilling the wells and stuff, but in two or three years, or I mean, you may not even have to use them much for a year or two, but that one year, and give you an example, in 2011, that was one of our driest, hottest years ever. That was right. actually, that was actually one of my best years because I had the water and the sources, and other people did not have that, so my competition dried up soon and blew away. You know. So. Sure, sure. So, Donna, tell us about. Um... You know, you guys are, are working in an area where you've got food that's produced locally. Um, you're marketing it locally, and um, it's being consumed locally. Uh, is, is that the goal of what you're trying to do with the uh, Food Conservancy and the Food Hub up there? Yes, part of our mission is is more local food on local tables. I think that's kind of the the key uh, tagline is local food on local tables. And um, I think, uh, you know, the COVID-19 um, pandemic has really made it even more um, in, into the forefront of, of local and regional food systems. So you've got an opportunity then to work with, with local farmers, whether it's strawberries, whether it's tomatoes, whether it's squash, whatever the, the product happens to be, and and you're looking for the different places where you can connect the farmer to the end consumer. Yes, that's correct. Now, Dennis, that's got to be a, a comfort to you. You've been farming for a long time, and to have the ability to hook up with a organization like the Food Conservancy uh, is helpful for you as well, too. 
Oh, definitely. And I tell you, it makes my life so much easier just to come to one location instead of trying to hit 10 or 15. I actually, uh, at one time, I actually had a delivery person that, that stayed done that twice a week. They actually delivered for me, and that's a hassle trying to figure out what goes to what store, this, that, and that, what have you, and then try to have it all ready. And my whole deal also, it will help me for future planning because I know what I can probably distribute through this warehouse here, you know. So it, it's win-win for local farmers. My biggest concern is we need to try to pull in younger farmers. We're uh, average farm age, you know, is about 60 years old or older, and uh, I understand the dilemma with the young people is a lot better to get you a job where you got a paycheck every week, and, you know, if you're farming in five minutes, you may lose your whole year's crop, so it's uh, definitely not exactly a, a easy life for anybody, you know, so that's the hope of this deal here is they'll be able to pull in some young farmers because they have a place to go with their products so they can actually make a little money and continue on. Yeah, and you're in an area that is uh, tremendous population growth as well, so there's obviously challenges of maintaining ag land there, but uh, the university, you're blessed with the university being there too. And, and Dennis, talk a little bit about, you know, some of you were saying you were doing this tomato project with the university, and 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 what was that like working with them? Oh, it was great. I, I, anytime the university asks me about doing a trial or anything like that, I'm always happy to do it because two reasons: it's helped the university, and more than likely, I'm going to learn something. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and if you. And in any business you're in, if you think you know everything, you've done it in trouble anyway. And it's a continuing process. The only constant in life is change, and you've got to change with the times. And uh, it's great working with them and trying to help them out. And like I said, I learned a new variety of tomatoes this year. I would probably never ever put out myself if I hadn't been doing this trial. And now I'll be farming some of them every year. So. Well, that sounds that sounds great, Diana. Um, how how many other farmers do you work with up in that area? Is there, you know, from uh, from the northwest Arkansas down through to the Central Valley because we have a lot of down the River Valley. Okay, um, it's about a total of about forty right now. Forty farmers. Wow! Wow! So we've been real, and we have a lot of Hmong farmers. We have some very very small farmers. Um, you know, one of the things that we worked with early on, you know, Dennis is way ahead. So we have people that are like leaders and like Dennis that can, can help. And uh, we have some, you know, small, uh, very small, you know, people that we're selling. Actually, we're selling to farmers markets mostly and restaurants. And then when everything closed down, you know, we were our directive from the foundation, um, uh, from the, the Walton Family Foundation was to, be able to purchase what everyone had so that people will not quit growing. Um, so that's what we opened the doors to. And uh, along the way, we were teaching people how to, um, you know, pack and standardize, you know, one and one ninth bushel, half bushel. We provided boxes. Um, and so just standardizing the things in, a, in, like I say, in an organic way. It wasn't like a class and this is how you do it. It was here's some boxes and, 
you know, the next time you bring this, um, we'd like to have them packed this way. And, oh, by the way, here's your check from the last delivery. And I think when people get money, exchange money, and you're not just putting it in their face, but you're, you know, showing them step by step how to do it. Um, it's really heart, heartfelt. And I think when someone walks out, I think Terry was saying the lady was able to walk out and show them her new scales that she was able to buy. Well, to most people that may, see, may seem insignificant, but to growing a food system, it is vital. And those little tiny baby steps that we kind of overlook sometimes are the true drivers, the underlying drivers that's going to make this successful in the next 10 or 20 years. And then you still have to have the leaders and the growers so people can see, well, hey, I can go out and look at Dennis, look at what he's doing. You know, I can go out to Brent's and see what he's doing. So we have some, you know, some fairly large-sized growers, and then we have all of these, you know, small growers, call them, you know, like the farmer's market growers. and Sure. And, you know, we like to help them scale up. Um, but it's a, it's a process. It's nothing that's going to happen overnight. It's a process. And hopefully, like Dennis said, you know, we'll get the young people involved in it. Um, and, uh, you know, they can they can can learn and we can guide them. And hopefully it will be uh, a, something that can be financially rewarding to them as long, you know, in addition to just being a lifestyle that they would like to, to enjoy. Well, she's Diana Endicott and directing – uh, the Food Conservancy and, and working in a project there in northwest Arkansas with Dennis McGarra, who's a uh, specialty crop grower up there, and and they work together to solve Dennis's uh, tomato issue that he had when he had a lot of tomatoes he needed to move. And, and thank you to both of you for spending this time on Arkansas AgCast today. And, and letting us know what's going up there in northwest Arkansas. It sounds like a really exciting project. And, uh, Dennis, I can't wait to hear. We'll have to talk again about your 73,000 strawberry plants. <laughs> well, I, I, they'll probably get some of them to move here next spring. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, you know, that, that's the whole deal is to try to provide. Because, man, people eat them strawberries all year that, don't really taste like strawberries to me, and when mine are ready, they kind of forget out any berries but mine. So, and I'm I'm looking forward to it because I cut into some strawberries I bought the other day, and they were all white. <laughs> and I was like, that ain't a strawberry. <laughs> so we appreciate it. Uh, thank you for being on this edition of Arkansas Cast, and I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Next, Ken Moore talks to Les Miller. Miller is a firefighter with the Arkansas Department of Agriculture's Forestry Division and crew chief of the 20-member Razorback team that recently went to Oregon to help fight some of the major wildfires there. Miller describes the team's two-week experience battling the blazes, which have consumed more than 2 million acres in Oregon and California. And it talks about what role forest management can play in minimizing future fire damage. I'm Ken Moore. Today, I am in Conway County, just north of Moralton at the Arkansas Forestry Division's regional station here, and I'm with Les Miller. Les was the crew chief for the Razorback team that just returned a few days ago from helping fight and contain the wildfires out in Oregon. Uh, Where they went and where they were dispatched to was just one of numerous wildfires that I'm sure many of you as our listeners have heard and seen 
on the national news over the last couple of months. And uh, Les, thank you very much for visiting with us today and and sharing your story with us. Uh, What the Razorback team encountered, you guys were ready. I mean, you've been trained for this. Thankfully, we don't you don't have to fight fires of this magnitude here in Arkansas, but uh, you're trained and prepared to do so when the call comes. So if you will, just kind of set the scene for us. You got the call a little over a month ago, back in early September, uh, to be dispatched up to Oregon. Tell us about getting that call and how you put the team together. Okay, so we got the call to uh, dispatch the top two IA team. Uh, the Arkansas Razorbacks in particular. And what that consists of is a group of state agents, uh, employees, I should say, the BIA, uh, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We had uh, three personnel off of uh, that out of Oklahoma. But the rest of the crew's uh, members would be the Game and Fish. We had members from the Game and Fish, also the uh, Parks and Recs here, and, of course, our uh, Fed, a few Fed um, employees. And last but not least, our guys here at the uh, Department of Agriculture Forestry Division made up a total crew of 20. And we put that crew together when we got the call and uh, uh, after the uh, first of the month. And uh, we all came together at Fort Smith. We flew out of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Uh, our intentional flight was to Portland uh, and then to Redmond. Uh, we boarded the plane at uh, 0400 that morning on the Thursday morning on the 16th and made it to Portland and were told that the uh, flights to Redmond were canceled. So, so we had a slight delay of getting to the fire there uh, what we call a hurdle, uh, one small hurdle to, to get to Portland. And uh, we ended up getting rental vehicles and carrying on to Redmond where we picked up our tools and all that we were uh, supplied with there. And from that point, we were initiated to uh, the fire, on the which was called the Thilson Fire, which was down uh, IC where we checked in, was at Lapine, uh, Oregon, and uh, the fire was actually just below Shamult, but it was called the Thilson Fire, which was kind of north of the uh, Crater Lake uh, area is where this fire was located. Now, when you arrived at the airport in Portland, the smoke was so bad in Redmond, you couldn't fly in there, so you couldn't land in Redmond. You had to drive in. Portland as a city itself was not threatened, as I understand it, but smoke travels. And, uh, and, and what did you find in Portland there? Yeah, so even coming in, uh, noticed that the plane circled prior to, to uh, hitting the runway, and uh, so we opened the windows of the plane to kind of look out and see what was going on. And uh, the smoke condition was so bad it was – Worse than any kind of fog, if you could only imagine a, a heavy fog around a lake. That's that's what it looked like, but but it was not fog. It was smoke. Um, so it was the airport was pretty well socked in. We did land safely. Um, once we got off the plane, we noticed we were walking through the airport. You look out the windows and you could see the nose of the plane, but the tail on the plane usually are bright colored markings. You. 
you could not make them out. Uh, that that's how dense the smoke was there in Portland. Wow, it's just and it's like that all over the West Coast because of these the magnitude of these fires. So then you got rental vehicles. You drove up to the Redmond area. And then just describe what your mission was, the the mission of, and I like to describe you guys as the fighting Razorbacks from Arkansas. You went out there as one of many, many crews out there on the ground with boots on the ground trying to bring these fires under control. So uh, what was your mission? So our mission as a top two IE team was initial attack. Um, that being said, our our crew with, with the training that we brought to Oregon we could be split up, work as a team, putting in hand lines, or split up and do multiple tasks, which that included uh, setting up sprinkler systems, which is what structure protection is what it's called. But we were involved with structure protections. We also broke some of our group out as, as saw group uh, to run saws, uh, a lot of uh, heavy uh, dead and down in the area trees that were burnt scarred that they were afraid were going to fall on the egress and ingress areas we mitigated those with our saw groups out of the team Um, along with putting in hand lines which is basically digging down to the mineral soil uh, around the uh, existing fire edge the crouching fire edges so so multiple tasks were were given to the razorbacks and all tasks that were given were done above and beyond expectation out there uh, for the fire team that we worked for, and they were very proud of the work that we did, and so was I as a crew boss. No question about that. Uh, talk about how what, what a day a typical day was like. You were there, I believe you told me, just about two weeks, but nonetheless, uh, this – People that uh, are not familiar cannot imagine, you know, how long hours you work, how exhausting the work is, but just uh, describe a typical day for us. So a typical day would be, obviously we stayed in tents uh, and uh, away from the fire and safety area, uh, close to what we call a fire camp or spot camp uh, at that point. And uh, around 0600 of the morning, we would get up, make sure we had water. Uh, the whole crew had water. We packed lunches, and uh, we would get a briefing about the fire activity and what division and task were at hand for that day. And we would drive out, and sometimes it take us about an hour to hour and twenty five minutes just to get out to the fire. Uh, very cold mornings. Um, temperatures would plummet at night on us out there uh, in the around 20 the lowest i remember was around 28 where we were camping to the low 30s 30 32 a couple of nights so not the best sleeping conditions i'll say that for the crew but uh, we could not wait for the sun to rise the next morning and get to work and and that's the truth Um, the days as far as that goes would warm up it would be in the 80s during the day so so good work uh, weather there but we would put in a good 16 hour day uh, and that would consist of us coming off the line around eight o'clock of an evening and and finding something to eat and then after that was done uh, obviously by headlamp because uh, 
we were camping out uh, for say. So we would get our meals and, uh, and then we would fuel our trucks back up, our saw uh, guys that were running saws and, and women. We would, uh, they would sharpen their chains, make sure we had plenty of bar oil. Everything got, got sharpened and ready. The tools, all the hand tools, mainly we work with hand tools. So all those would be sharpened and put back in place. Uh, anybody that had any um, medical issues, we would take care of them, meaning sore feet, you know, cuts or abrasions. Uh, that would all be taken care of that, that evening. And uh, we'd be ready for the next morning to see what the next task was. I imagine it wasn't hard to fall asleep uh, from exhaustion because of after a 16-hour day, that's that's amazing. And that that continued for about what 14 days. That's correct. We we were on the line for a solid 14 days out there. Um, so so that was day in day out, kind of our procedures of what was going on. Um, task may change a little bit uh, here and there. We had lookouts that the Razorbacks were involved in uh, as far as keeping up with the weather, hourly weather and fire conditions uh, in the division that we were in, and also calling in air attacks. We had uh, several air attacks that were called in. That meaning we were dropping water and retarded from fixed-wing uh, aircraft and also helicopter. Okay, and, and the pandemic played a role in, in how you were able to perform your duties as well. Talk about how under these unusual conditions that we're all having to live in, they wanted to make sure that no member of the team uh, infected anybody else with the virus or was exposed. So you had to deal with some uh, social distancing regulations, I'm sure. And that kind of, Did that in, impede your work at all? It did in, in some ways, but I'll say this, um, the – the state and the, the uh, Arkansas forestry, meaning Arkansas forestry and the uh, federal guys and gals made sure that we had uh, hand wipes and, and our facial covering masks. They gave us plenty of those um, uh, hand sanitizer. We carried all that with us, you know, made sure it was on the line. Uh, to say that we, we try to be as clean as possible. Even camping conditions like that, and it's very tough to to do that. Um, but but they 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 tried to their best to make sure that that we were all protected. Uh, me as a crew boss, I made sure that my crew kind of stayed away from the other crew members, and especially in the camping areas, we kind of isolated ourselves uh, that way. And also, when we had briefings, we we made sure that we were six feet apart and had face coverings but uh yeah we it slowed us down a little bit uh in ways uh, but we adapted to it and uh, uh everybody came home uh safe and without uh, being infected great now those of us who live in cities and we see the reports and we know what firefighters, uh, the tools and the equipment they have to work with to protect themselves when they're going into structure fires. Many times they we see the images of them wearing oxygen tanks. I mean, fire is acrid. Uh, smoke is acrid, I should say. Uh, and, and then we all hear about uh, how, you know, you have to get low to the ground because you don't want, you know, smoke inhalation can kill you. Uh, but you don't have any of those oxygen tanks on the line, fire lines out in the in the forest, do you? So, 
how are you able to protect yourself from uh, the acrid effects and the toxic effects of these fires? Okay, so the oxygen tanks are what they call a SCBA, uh, and that's a self-contained bottle of air, uh, and that's in structure protection that, that they have. Uh, we don't have that luxury, obviously, uh, as a wildfire fighter, we've already carried so much equipment on our back. Um, so for us to, uh, mitigate, uh, inhaling as much smoke as possible, we use, uh, a lot of us use handkerchiefs, neck gaiters and that kind of thing. And, and basically we pull it up over our nose and our mouth and wear goggles. And that's about the best defense that we have, um, if you've ever burnt leaves in a, in a, uh, your yard and stood in the most intense smoke, imagine that for 16 hours and you'll, you'll, that, that will be what, what, what it's like to be on the fire line with us. Wow. But you're not overcome by it. No, it can be exhausting, um, and wear on you, but you know, you have to be mindful. We have to watch out for each other out there, um, and drink plenty of water, uh, but we've always got each other's back, and if if it gets too intense, um, yeah, we'll back off and and try to get somewhere and get some fresh air and and rehydrate before we engage that fire again. I would think if you're right up anywhere near the fire line, trying to create a fire break or whatever, the intensity of the heat, uh, you'd have to back away from time to time to, like you just said, regather, you know, gather yourself again, and then. Uh, I can just not imagine what the how hot does it get down there on those fire lines. You said the actual temperature was like 80 degrees, but I would think you'd be well over 100 degrees up there on that fire line. Yeah, it can be intense. Um, just to put in perspective, some of the heat that, that we are up against, um, a couple of us have had uh, sunglasses that have the mirrored image on the on the front, mirrored glass, and I have melted the mirror glass off of of uh, some of our frames it's been that intense heat but uh, our our ppe that uh, is given to us which means our nomex clothing it protects us pretty well uh, but it does get intense sometimes too too hot to, to bear and we'll back off for sure we'll back away from that but uh, you know our equipment means the world to us it's keeping us engaged on that line sure it does uh, so talk about again, just, I can only imagine this was something of the magnitude that you've never experienced here in Arkansas, but, uh, what, 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 do you think, what do members of the team think and what kind of, how does this help when you cut back home, you're learning things that, uh, well, you know, you can implement back here to make sure this never happens in Arkansas. So that being said, uh, some of the things I've never seen before would be how dry the heavier fuels, meaning the dead trees, standing dead trees, uh, uh, how dry they actually were. And to put that in perspective for us here back home, uh, uh, say a 5 or 10 inch tree, normally if you cut it and say it was a, a 16 foot tree, you cut it down more than likely you would buck or cut it up in pieces to move it. But it was so dry out there this time, uh, this year, when you cut a tree like that down, one person could actually pick that size tree up and move it. That's how dry and light it was. There was no moisture in it. So uh, very 
impressive to see. I, I hate to see it, but it was impressive to see because I've never seen that before in my lifetime. Um, that being said, bringing, bringing our uh, training back home, what we did see out there, uh, yeah, so our prescribed burns uh, here, uh, watching fire activity out there in that size magnitude, it, I don't want to say relaxes us when we come home and do a burn, but we realize what the potentials are or could be. And uh, so reducing those fuel loads back home um, is crucial for us to not have major big wildfires like you see out west. And we do a great job here in Arkansas with that. Um, I wish more people would contact us uh, and let us let us come out and look at their properties and talk to them about doing prescribed burns because that's one of the keys to Arkansas keeping the, that from happening here. Also along with the uh, FireWise program, and that can be um, hopefully ask your uh, volunteer fire departments about FireWise and the Department of Agriculture Forestry Division call and ask about the FireWise program because it's a great program. Uh, obviously, we don't have the time to get into it, but please check those out. Ask your, your uh, local firefighters about it uh, and get involved with that, creating green space around your, your personal home properties. Um, that, that helps us tremendously here, keeping that wildfire down in Arkansas. Well, Les, uh, you and your team, the other members of the Razorbacks, uh, are to be commended, and we appreciate you being one of hundreds of other crews out there helping to contain and control these fires. Uh, you you were successful in protecting property. There were a lot of structures. You said the area around Crater Lake out there is kind of a popular destination. That's why you train to do what you do, isn't it? It is, and, you know, when we go out there and get to help another state, whether it be home or another state, uh, we are so blessed uh, to have the training, uh, the ability to have the training and uh, the physical ability to go out there and, and help others. Um, and that, that says a lot about Arkansas and the people of Arkansas. Uh, I can't tell you how many crews uh and individual single resources that go out from from arkansas that were on several fires uh all around whether it be in oregon washington california washington uh, uh wyoming right now um all of them uh, arkansans we have a big heart it's and and it shows and and it shows out there i see a, a lot of us you know i'm one of like you said many um, but, uh, yeah, we, we care and they know we care and that's what, what drives us to keep doing this job. Well, it's a calling, isn't it? What you do is not for everybody. And you know that you're potentially putting your lives at risk when you're going out to fight these fires, because as you told me earlier, they are a living, breathing organism and, uh, they can be very unpredictable and uncontrollable. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, like to give a shout out to the people behind the scenes again that get us out there I, you know it's our our dispatchers it's our planes in the air that help us uh 
navigate around a fire that we can't see that protect us. But also, you know, uh, it's our family members at home, our, our, our moms and dads, our uh, wives, our children. You know, <clears throat> they, they too are putting a lot on the line every time they let us walk out that door and go help. Uh, and I want to thank them for that. And, and all the support from home, uh, me and, uh, you know, Farm Bureau, our agency, our, the public on Facebook that's cheering us on, that gets us up, that keeps us motivated, keeps us moving every day, uh, keeps us doing the job that we do. What was be one final word to the public, uh, to our listeners, about how these fires can be prevented beyond just the prescribed burnings that you do uh, as an agency, but just the public to make sure we, we see the signs, you know, only you can prevent forest fires? Well, I would say here back home, uh, one of the biggest things that we hear uh, after a wildfire has occurred, as it's usually started by someone, whether it, non-intentional, we do have those those out there, but the non-intentional fires are the ones where somebody was burning some trash or the leftover hay out of a hay baler, and they, they left it unattended. And just for a brief moment, just to go inside to get, a say, a glass of tea or to fix a sandwich, and they come out, I hear this story over and over again. I came outside, and everything was on fire. It happens that quick. So how can we prevent that? Well, <clears throat> a good way would be, you know, never take your eye off of it. Make sure that you've got a well-maintained area around that uh, uh, fire that you've started but also pay attention to the weather look at the weather not just today look at it for what it's going to do tomorrow because normally that's when that fire gets away from you it's a small ember all it takes is an ember the size of a pinhead on the right right day right condition rh's are down um, and a sunny day wind can blow one small ember the size of a pinhead over and start a fire so uh Pay attention to that, uh, and also it, it helps your communities if, if you'll call your dispatch, your local dispatch, your local fire department, and let them know that you're fixing to start a fire um, at at your residence. So we know that that's a controlled burn and it's not a, a potential wildfire. So, so all those little things can help out tremendously of preventing um, a, a major wildfire here in Arkansas. Well, we have the uh, Washita National Forest. We have the Ozarks. Uh, we're blessed to have these forests here in our state, and we thank you and your colleagues for helping protect our wonderful timberlands and, and that we're so blessed with. We love to go hiking. We love to go camping. We love to go hunting, and it's only because you guys are there to kind of help educate the public on how we can do our part in protecting these natural resources and then if something happens, you do the same with these prescribed burns and others to make sure we can enjoy these forests. Thank you so much. Thank you and uh, the opportunity to, to have this interview. Uh, I've enjoyed it. And if anybody ever has any questions, we're always here and available. Appreciate that. I've been speaking with Les Miller. He was the crew chief of the Razorbacks. I call him the fighting Razorback firefighting crew that went out and just returned home safely from Oregon, from Redmond, Oregon, after being on the ground 
out there for two weeks on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Finally, Ken talks to Stan Adams, one of many crop farmers in southeast Arkansas working late into the night to harvest rice, soybeans, corn, and cotton before potentially heavy rainfall and wind from the remnants of Hurricane Delta move in. I'm Ken Moore, and right now I'm speaking with Mr. Stan Adams. He's one of our great uh, row crop farmers down in the Bel Air community of Chico County, kind of a community located between McGee and Lake Village there in southeast Arkansas. And uh, Mr. Adams, I know right now as we're speaking, you're harvesting part of your soybean crop. So thank you for giving me a few minutes of your time while you're on your combine trying to get your soybeans out of the field before the latest round of rain comes in. We're expecting more rainfall, if we can believe it, uh, as the remnants of this latest hurricane move across southeast Arkansas this weekend. Uh, Tell me... uh, you know what it's been like for you this summer this is just the latest storm that we've had to deal with this summer well you know we we had a lot of rain this spring that made our crops later than usual and uh now this is hitting us on the tail end and just dragging it out even further but ah. It is what it is. I really don't know what to say. We can't do. We can't beat Mother Nature. Well, it's just part of what uh, crop farmers like yourselves have to deal with every year. You you deal with. You hope for some dry weather when you get your crops planted in the spring. And the last yes, couple sir. of years have been unusually wet during planting season. So as you just said, the crops are a little bit delayed uh, maturing and and getting the combines in the field to get them out. And now here at harvest time. Uh, we're dealing with these tropical systems as they bring rainfall across uh, your farms. Uh, so just talk about how your how many hours you having to work, and I know your beans are ready to get out of the field, but uh, you know what's it like for you? How many? I guess you're working very long days uh, in advance of this latest storm. Well, you know we start as soon as we can in the morning, and we work until the dew gets too heavy. Uh, I wish we could work all night, but I just you just can't do that because of the dew fall. But uh, it's how many it's hours? How long? How many hours a day are you having to uh, be in the field right now? I guess you're working until way after dark. Yes, sir. Uh, you know the it just depends on the on the dew fall. You know some nights it's eight o'clock and some nights it's on up you know on up in the night uh you don't never know but we start as early as we can and work as late as we can i imagine you have some 12 hour days anyway on that combine right now what you're you're getting what you can get done while it's still dry oh, oh yeah 12 hour days are pretty common yes sir. wow wow so how has it been through? What kind of uh, crops are you seeing this year? Are your yields turning out okay? Well, the crops in the field are great. Uh, I think everybody's crops are good this year. It's just I hope we can get them all out. Uh, yeah. Let me get this thing turned. All right, I understand he's uh, he is driving his combine as we're speaking right now. So I appreciate Mr. Adams giving us a few minutes of your time of his time while he's trying to get his beans out of the field. 
uh, I'm just going to you know, wonder, I know you deal with Mother Nature every year. It, you have dry spells and wet spells. But have you seen or had a, a growing season in recent memory where we've had as many of these tropical systems affect you? No, sir. No, sir. We've had wet spells during harvest, but not one just, you know, right after another one. Uh, we we got rained out this year before we ever even started. So we we were a week late getting started. Right. And uh, that just delayed uh, planting. And then, you know, as we said a minute ago, the maturation, the growth season of the crops, uh, and then, you know, the time, you know, when you can get them out. Uh, it's getting a little bit late into the season, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I'm just wondering, you know, have you you haven't had any damage? I hope we had a the remnants of Hurricane Laura move across a couple of weeks back uh, when that storm moved into uh, Louisiana. We were concerned about wind. Are you concerned about any potential wind damage to your crops this weekend? Well, with Laura, our our cotton, you know, our bowls were just opening and there was a few leaves left on it, but uh, right now it's all open and kind of hanging there. Yes, wind would wind would be a big factor. Uh, it could knock a lot out on the ground, which you don't want to lose any of it. But it's you know, like I said, it it is what it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Right. Well, we just pray that uh, it will not be as bad as it possibly could be. Uh, from what we learned from uh, various. Uh, officials, the county extension agents, and others that we spoke to a month ago, uh, we kind of dodged the bullet with Laura at that time. We had a little bit of lodged rice, uh, some down corn, but it was spotty. It wasn't widespread, thankfully, and hopefully that will certainly be the case uh, right now because, as you say, when cotton bowls are open, and I know right now it's time to pick cotton. I mean, those bowls are very susceptible to a potential very heavy rainfall damage and potentially some wind, so let's Hope and pray that uh, we don't see any widespread damage. I think we're going to be right on the edge of the effects of this storm. What are you hearing? Uh, same thing. Uh, you know, if it'll go a little east, I've always heard that's kind of the dry side, so or drier side. So I hope it will go a little further east. Not wishing anybody else any bad luck. Of course, uh, we certainly our thoughts are with your brothers and, and our other farmers and ranchers in the state of Mississippi because it looks like they're kind of right in the crosshairs of the remnants of this storm. They'll get a lot more rainfall potentially to the east of uh, Chico County than what you may get this weekend. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's, that's, that's what I'm hearing. Well, we heard, certainly hope uh, we don't have a widespread crop damage over there to the east of uh, Arkansas, Mississippi. But, uh, again, it's just been an unusual uh, summer, late summer, if you will, and early fall with uh, the frequency of these storms. I think it's almost one for the record books. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, if we can survive this one, then I guess we'll be okay. <laughs> Well, hopefully this will be the last one that uh, crops up down there in the Gulf of Mexico and comes this way. We certainly hope that will be the case. But, uh, Mr. Adams, thank you. Good luck with your soybean harvest, your 
your cotton harvest as you get your cotton out of the field here over the next few weeks, and uh, we'll just work our way through the weekend. I know you're going to be working some late hours, as we said, so you you stay safe, and uh, hopefully you can get a lot of these beans out of the field before this thing moves in, and it's not as bad as we think it could be. Okay. Thank you very much. Been talking to Mr. Stan Adams from Chico County uh, about the harvest season down there in southeast Arkansas in advance of the remnants of uh, Hurricane Delta on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. That's a wrap on another Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back next week with the latest news, interviews, and updates on Arkansas's largest industry.